Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. Our goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Professor Robin Kelly, the Gary B. Nash Distinguished Professor of American History and Professor of African American Studies at UCLA. Robin Kelly is a widely acclaimed author, an inspiring teacher, a deeply committed activist, and one of the most important intellectuals in the United States. Welcome to you, Robin. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here with you. Oh, really, it's it's, um, an obligation and pleasure. Uh, Obligation because of the situation we find ourselves in this country, uh, a time of chaos and great distress. Um, especially in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota by Derek, by Derek Chauvin, a police officer uh, with the Minneapolis Police Department on May 25th. While the status quo seems unsustainable, the state of affairs also evokes the French expression that the more things change, the more they stay the same. We recognize this movie, another innocent African-American murdered, another police officer responsible. Will justice be served? Many people, African-Americans and others, fear that the answer is no. And there are really few people more suited to address the questions that arise from the current moment than Robin Kelly. So Robin, when we first talked about having this conversation last week, you brought up the famous concept of the German-Jewish thinker, Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. Um, To remind our listeners, that was the term that Arendt used while reporting on the trial in 1961 of SS officer for Jewish affairs, Adolf Eichmann, uh, who was apprehended by Israeli officers in Argentina and brought to Israel to face justice for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes against the Jewish people. Arendt, very controversially, saw Eichmann not as a monstrous demon in his own right, but rather as a cog in the wheel, a bureaucrat simply following the orders of a demonic regime and leader. And I'm wondering, Robin, why in the wake of the convulsive events of the last week or so, um, you thought of Arendt's concept? And more generally, how do you think that idea has held up uh, since the appearance of Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, in 1963? That's a great question. You know, I returned to to the book for some other reason. um, And I was struck by how uh, her formulation of the banality of evil, and especially the idea of uh, bureaucratic nobodies, really helped me think about the routine nature of racist uh, police violence. So, you know, imagine, I mean, I'm 58 years old, my entire life, all I remember are, you know, people being, Black people being killed by the police. You know, I could, I could name names going back to 1970s. Uh, and I've watched this, and I've watched Black people die at the hands of the police in staggering numbers. Um, and in every instance, when protests occur, we're always looking for monsters, 
you know, the, you know, the, the bad apples, the Klansman with the badge. Uh, and this led, this leads actually and continues to lead to policies that focus on officer behavior. That is, you know, you fire officers that are bad, you train officers to make them better, you diversify the force. Uh, but these guys are quite literally doing their job. And when you see that video of Derek Chauvin, you know, rocking on George Floyd's neck, and his hands are in his pocket, right? Uh, he, you know, he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. I mean, he, this is broad daylight. Uh, and the same goes for the men who invaded the home of Breonna Taylor, uh, who killed Michael Brown, who, Tamir Rice. They, they were not necessarily monsters. They didn't wake up in the morning uh, with hate in their heart, you know. Um, they were much closer to what Hannah Arendt calls nobodies. You know, that is, they were employees of the state who believed um, they were doing their jobs, um, and but the but the difference is, and and here is where I probably differ with with Hannah Arendt, maybe just in terms of emphasis, is that while they didn't wake up with hatred in their hearts, they were operatives of a system that understood and organized the world by differentiating groups into suspects and criminals, um, victims, and then those who were to be protected or those who need protection. You know, um, their job was to defend property. Uh, their job is to, def to defend property against people without property. And the axis often falls along the counterfeit lines of race. You know, so lethal weapons are used to preserve life. Uh, lethal weapons are, uh, we're told, are the things that, that they need to save their lives, to save the lives of others, uh, not to kill. You know, um, killing is saving life. Killing the disposable, you know, as those dis considered disposable by the state, um, even if there is no law or rule, you know, it's kind of, you know, there's a kind of consistency in terms of the acquittals of off officers in these cases. Um, you know, they, they're, they're almost all, you know, 99% of police officers involved in homicides uh, are not charged with anything. And the 1% that are charged are usually not charged with, with um, murder. Uh, and they don't, they, and they almost never get um, uh, uh, um, convicted. So one last thing about this: um, this is why, you know, I well, two things. This is why I really like, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's definition of racism. She, she says racism is, um, uh, she says racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. So in this definition, it, there's no classic binary between evil and good, between the monsters and the, and the good people, no bad apples. And in some ways, um, what's, what's critical is the, the, the sense that the society we live in is steeped in white supremacy. You know, um, so yes, it is true. Uh, Eichmann was a cog in the wheel, um, you know, but where I think Hannah Arendt might have faltered, and maybe I misread read her, is underestimating the extent to which Nazi ideology dominated everyday thought, you know, to the extent that, you know, so many Germans were seeped in it. It became common sense, much like white supremacy is a kind of common sense. It's not just a structure upon high, but a common sense that really in some ways um, uh, regulates or guides 
people's behavior. And one of the most amazing things we're seeing with these protests are people who are rejecting the common sense. You know, a lot of white people rejecting the common sense of white supremacy and doing things that are not necessary what they're expected to do, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you've just offered. I want to just drill down, if I can, on a couple of points. And that is the idea of um, the the erasure of the distinction between evil and good because the state dictates it. Um, And this um, is an insight that Arendt and a number of other um, often German thinkers arrived at in the middle of the century as they looked on the specter of totalitarianism and fascism, that the state, by definition of being the ultimate authority, had its own instrumental logic, to use the terms of Horkheimer and Adorno, that basically um, made might right, made uh, bad good, made evil uh, into virtue. Um, And indeed, that um, is a critique that we have to think of in the current context. And I want to talk more about that. Uh, But if I could just go back to one piece of uh, the Arendt story that's important, as you know well, she was criticized uh, for depicting Eichmann as a cog in the wheel, um, which her critics saw as an erasure of his own culpability. And I'm just curious to hear how you address that criticism in the context of Derek Chauvin. Um, how are we to uh, understand that individual's culpability, mindful of the fact that he is an agent of the state? But are we to uh, forget about that or uh, 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 turn our attention away from the individual, the individual's culpability? Um, I think you could do both. I mean, you know, I, I read, I read uh, uh, Aaron, Aaron a little differently. You know, I, I thought that in the end, um, she wasn't so much erasing um, Eichmann's culpability entirely. And I know, I understand the critique, mm-hmm. but that, that the culpability didn't rest on his shoulders. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, structural racism also involves <laughs> culpable people. And that, in fact, one of the slogans that you see on the streets is, you know, um, white silence is complicity, right? And white silence is violence. Is violence, yeah. right. White silence is violence, white silence is complicity. And if that's the case, then instead of removing um, culpability or transferring it to this powerful state, it then redounds upon everyone that we're all culpable in some way. We're all, you know, have a, a sense of responsibility. Um, and so again, again, I'm thinking about this in terms of, of U.S. history and, and history of white supremacy. Um, uh, my, my dear friend, Nola um, Ignatiev, who passed away recently, uh, was the editor of a journal called Race Trader. And the masthead on race trader was, you know, um, loyalty to um, tre- treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. And his thing is that every person needs to basically reject, you know, what whiteness stands for, you know, in terms of like an exercise of power, privilege. Um, it's not to, to, to deny one's own self, but to recognize that there's, a, that there's an identity that's tied to the reproduction of racism. Um, and so in some respects, that's maybe that's where I might differ. I don't know. Um, Hannah Aaron is not here to, to argue with me <laughs> or you. But I, I do think that those two things are synergistic. Um, there would be no, uh, see, 
and this is the thing that, that's most important in terms of my reading of, of that text, is that Derek Chauvin had some like 26 um, uh, complaints filed against him. Uh, the, the department, uh, in, uh, the police department in Minneapolis, I think between 2003 and, and maybe 2016, I believe those are the dates, but roughly had to pay out $21 million in settlements for lawsuits and claims for police misconduct and wrongful death. In other words, that system that takes money from people, taxpayers, doesn't hold the officers accountable and then use taxpayers' money to pay out what is what, are, what we can argue uh, are not just police misconduct, but acts of white supremacy um, or racism or violence, violence against working people, violence against women, you know, that, that alone suggests that they're being moved forward in this co- as a, not just as a cog, but as a facilitator of a system. And that system continues to f- facilitate and reward um, this genocidal be- behavior, you know. Right. Well, I think your instinct is right here. I think Arendt did not understand this as a zero-sum prop- proposition. She, did, she in fact, um, thought uh, Eichmann should be convicted. Um, well, at the same time, uh, she believes that the real attention must be focused on uh, the structure of, of hatred and violence that Nazism represented and understanding the ultimate source. Um, and that um, brings us uh, to the current moment. Um, and I'm interested to hear how you understand this current moment. Um, Memi people have suggested that this current moment can be compared to other moments uh, in the not too distant past to 1992, especially here in Los Angeles, uh, the year of the Rodney King beating and uh, the acquittal of the police officers uh, who beat him and the subsequent uprising, or even further back to 1968 or even to 1965 and Watts. Um, I'm just wondering how you think about um, such analogies, uh, both in general and in a more particular sense uh, to those years that I mentioned. How should we understand this current moment? Is it a rupture, an opening directly analogous to past moments and thus destined to repeat the cycle? Well, you know, um, I think that there are patterns, uh, some things that are, I wouldn't say repeated, but certainly uh, continue to. Uh, prevail, like for example, uh, the Watts Rebellion, nineteen ninety-two, and now um, all center again on um, some act of police violence. I mean, that's just consistent, and it centers on some acts of police violence that ultimately uh, had national implications. In fact, international implications. I mean, Watts and um, the LA Rebellion all had these international ramifications. So that's, that's consistent, but I think there's some significant differences. Um, you know, Watts in 65 was pretty much contained to South Los Angeles. Uh, it was con- considered to be a black revolt um, against the police in the state. Now, you know, th- there are other people who are involved, um, but one thing about Watts, which is so interesting is that um, out of the ashes of Watts emerged this amazing 
um, uh, kind of cultural and political renaissance, a, a political movement uh, that led to, you know, Community Alert Patrol and the Black Panther Party and um, the, the US organization and just a lot of sort of cultural nationalism flowering. Um, 1992, which extended beyond South LA, started there, then it went out, which was which shocked everybody. Um, and in both cases, the National Guard were involved. Uh, in, in 1992, it's interesting um, just how, how, I wouldn't say how violent, but just how widespread that rebellion was and how many people died. I mean, I think someone was telling me that um, it took, before the National Guard was called in, I think some 60 odd people had already, were already killed. Um, and though that was a, a kind of rebellion in which, you know, 65 people were pretty organized. 92, there was some organization, but people were caught off guard. You know, they, they didn't know what to do. In fact, organization emerged out of 1992, which led to the great uh, gang truce and a plan for Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, the other differences between the two is 65 is the Lyndon Johnson administration, it's a liberal administration. It is one that that is insisting on um, trying to attend to the poor through a war on poverty, attend to racism and inequality. Uh, 65 also was in some ways a catalyst for a range of uh, protests between 64, actually say 63 Cambridge, 63 and 72 where 300 cities went up in flames. 60,000 people arrested, it was like a war zone. 92, I, I wouldn't say 92 was isolated, but 92 was very significant and very much focused on Los Angeles. Now, when we jump to today, I think there is a very significant difference. Um, it's something I've never seen in my lifetime. And that is the, the crowds, the protesters are far more uh, multiracial than I've ever seen. And, and I've lived through 92. Um, I lived through Harlem in 64, that's how old I am. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's, these are multiracial crowds. It is, uh, it's affecting 40 cities at least, plus outside the United States, France, in, in um, Netherlands, uh, Germany, um, South Africa, everywhere. Um, this seems to be a, a movement that, also has a much clearer sense of what to do. And when I say movement is, I know we're gonna get into this a little later, but um, th there are significant organizational forces with an agenda that organize a lot of these protests. And we don't always see that agenda because there's so much focus on looting. Uh, but part of that agenda is, in the, is an agenda that 10 years ago, five years ago, was seen as completely um, fantasy, and that is defund the police, uh, replace police with new forms of public safety, um, you know, decarceration. I mean, things that people weren't talking about before. But this comes out of, and this is, I think, significant, the reason that we can have this vast multiracial presence in cities all over the country, and also an insistent movement that doesn't seem to be letting up making demands that just seem um, like not just reformist demands, but um, demands that are, are structural reforms. Um, th that the reason that this happens is beca because we had a decade 
of almost a decade of intense struggle, beginning with the Trayvon Martin um, killing all the way through Eric Garner and Michael Brown, um, and that these were not just lists of people, lists of names of people killed by the police. This also generated a massive movement across the country that was already prepared and mobilized to do this despite a, a pandemic. So th- these times are different. These times are, are and, and one last thing mm-hmm. is that um, even though a lot of what happened happened under uh, President Obama's watch, I'm not blaming him or anything, but you have to remember that. Um, one of the things that's significant is that the whole time Obama was president, he never recognized Black Lives Matter as an organization. Uh, now that he's no longer in office, he's actually praising them and saying, you know, we need to support them. That's, that's a sea change. <laughs> no one expected. So uh, these, these are the times. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about that 10-year period that you're talking about, um, uh, beginning with the Trayvon Martin murder. Um, and then um, including the, the, the Obama years. I'm, I'm curious, before we get to the current moment and the Trump regime, how do you assess the Obama presidency in terms of um, that decade and the changes that uh, took place during it? That's why this is being podcast, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have to tell, I have to tell the truth. So I, I have... I. I like Obama as a person. Um, I met him once, actually, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, his family's wonderful. Um, Michelle is great. Uh, but when it comes to his record with respect to policing, um, it's certainly not Trump's. No, there's no comparison. But it, it was less, less than what many of us expected. And I'll say why. Um, there are sort of two or three things that, I think, characterizes administration. Uh, one is, you know, he had a, a deep empathy for the people who were being killed. I mean, his remarks about Trayvon Martin being, could have, could, could have been his son. I mean, that's very moving and powerful. But at the same time, he continued to support legislation uh, that would transfer, use federal funds to purchase or transfer military hardware to local police forces. Um, So there wasn't a major reform there. Um, He still held on to the idea that, you know, the police just simply need to be better trained, but they also need to be better equipped. Um, When the the uprising in Baltimore took place after the murder of Freddie Gray, um, Obama was quoted as saying, you know, that those protests were, not the protests, but the riots, were really a bunch of thugs. Um, So in other words, he he was using thugs before um, Trump, although I can't think of a president who didn't use thugs, (laughs) not in the 20th century at least. Um, So at some point it happens. Uh, You know, I think toward the end of his administration, uh, things began to change. But all I know is that Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, uh, groups like um, Recharge Genocide, the Dream Defenders, have fought tirelessly against the Obama administration. Um, you know, and, and they said, look, we, we appreciate the Justice Department uh, deciding to investigate uh, cases like the murder of Michael Brown and others, but they wanted some more significant reforms. 
so they, they weren't crazy about what was going on. And now a lot of them feel vindicated. I mean, I, these are friends of mine, people who run these organizations. They feel quite vindicated because of Obama's change in, in, in heart, but also recognizing that the movements that erupted uh, would have forced anyone to ch- have a change of heart who's a Democrat, given what's going on. So for many observers, including many good liberals, um, it seems that often seems like the big rupture came with the election of Donald Trump and um, uh, his blatant disregard for the rule of law, his unvarnished rhetoric of vilification, uh, amongst other um, offenses. Um, How should we understand Trump's presidency in the context of this moment of change? Right. That's an excellent question because, um, you know, I spent the last five, six, seven years writing all these pieces in the Obama years, uh, critical of Obama. But there's a fun- fundamental difference, a fundamental difference. Um, when Obama was president, uh, at all stages of his administration, um, including the Department of Education, uh, there was a tendency to yield to pressure. In other words, um, a a great example, of course, is like, you know, Obama's position on on the pipeline, you know, um, and recognizing that uh, fossil fuels, you know, are not the the path to the future. A lot of pressure was put on on Obama uh, and others. Um, Trump is not only unyielding, but he and his people have a particular agenda that is that does not respond to democratic pressures whatsoever. Uh, if anything, and I know this is a word that people don't like to use very often, but if there's ever a regime in the United States that's close to fascism, um, this is the one. Um, you know, and so, and the reason why is that the Trump administration, I say the administration, not just him, because I think he's kind of an idiot, but, but everyone in that administration, are, they're quick to invoke a kind of state of emergency, kind of state of exception, um, to do anything they want. If that means the most recent iteration of that, of course, is uh, deploying the army against protesters, right? declaring you know, organizations like Antifa, uh, which stands for anti-fascists, saying that anti-fascists <laughs> are um, terrorists. Um, you know, pushing through, uh, you know, the, I mean, using money that's earmarked for the Pentagon to build a wall. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many things that just have no relationship to the rule of law, mm-hmm. um, the way that this administration tries to kind of run over um, uh, even the judiciary by appointing judges who are not only unqualified, but doing so in the, in the dark of night. I mean, this is what's dangerous. And I think what's going to happen, and one of the differences is that in that protest opposition, instead of forcing an administration to yield, it would lead to greater repression, justification for, for imprisonment, uh, deportation, um, and anyone who's engaged in creating alternatives to the current state 
with you know changing law like eliminating cash bail, uh, you know pushing to stop prison construction, all that they're going to be crushed, totally crushed. And the fact that um, I mean this is is almost like a like a science fiction novel. The fact that um, Donald Trump is is basically in 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 his his, his antagonists are governors and mayors. <laughs> I mean, it's not even like, you know, they're like all these socialists out there, you know, uh, or, or anarchists or, no, his, his antagonists are governors and mayors who are trying to push back against this regime. That is dangerous, you know? Um, and that's what, that's where I think it's radically different from, uh, from Obama, even if in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy, there may be some similarities, but you know, Look, we're historians. We know that there's been a, a pretty much a pretty standard pattern of domestic and foreign policy initiatives going back to, to um, the 1970s to today, you know, irrespective of party. Um, but this Trump is different. It's different. And now the added cover of the COVID crisis, which enables uh, the invocation of emergency law, state of emergency, with uh, with the greatest of ease. So you have these two factors laying on top of, of one another, Trump and his disregard for the rule of law and vilification uh, strategies and the COVID crisis. Um, and I'm wondering if with your good Marxian training, you see the potential for the dialectics of history to uh, come into play. That is to say, uh, this exacerbation uh, of oppression um, offering up the prospect of a redemptive moment. Yeah, well, you know, um, the prospect, see, that's the key word, prospect <laughs> of a redemptive moment. I, I do think that the prospect is there, um, uh, but whether or not it could be realized uh, is, is a matter of, of, of a number of things. It's, it, it, it rests on um, recognizing, I think, several things. One, that even the COVID crisis, the pandemic, you know, kind of lays bare uh, other contradictions that have been dogging our society for a long time. I mean, you know, um, the, it, it becomes a pretext for Trump's agenda, but some of that agenda are tied to older draconian policies. So the acceleration of border closings, for example, um, and more barriers to asylum seekers, um, you know, we we begin, we saw that it's more intense under uh, Trump. But we we saw that as a as basically American history since the 1970s, since 1977, especially uh, ignoring you know or limiting labor laws in retail and warehouse workers, you know, um, who work for Amazon and for Instacart and all these gig workers who are quite precarious and who are fighting for a minimum wage. The the even the the what I think is just a vicious assault on the meatpacking industry, uh, where people are dying, the, the infection rates rise exponentially. The conditions for work and the, the decline of wages, the elimination of those labor laws, that accelerated under Trump, but that was going on again since the 70s. Um, Indian country, you know, which is the latest, you know, epicenter of the coronavirus, you know, it's, it's years, decades, century of federal government's continued legacy of neglect and dispossession and enclosure, which creates the conditions for there being no infrastructure 
for there being the spread of COVID-19. Um, so if there's going to be a redemptive moment, it has to be one that is not centered on the elimination of Donald Trump and then walking away to try to get to business as usual. Because my biggest fear, you know, um, is that people will, will come to believe that all we need is a Democrat in the White House and then we can go back to normal. But what was normal wasn't so great. And then just three other things I would mention, uh, which I think are telling about this time. Uh, one is that, you know, even the, the kind of the anti-Asian racism that was provoked by the myth of the, you know, the Chinese virus, that that anti-Asian racism preceded Trump, you know, um, and preceded Trump, <laughs> as we know, by a long, long, long way. Um, domestic violence spiked. Big roots in American history. Oh, yeah. Domestic violence, especially, is something we don't talk much about, really spiked under, um, you know, the, the sort of stay-at-home um, uh, uh, orders. And, you know, there was basically all these people who had to either um, choose homelessness or live under terror because there were no resources available to them. Um, you know, as a result, domestic violence was an issue way before Trump was elected, and it hasn't gotten much better. And then finally, you know, mass incarceration is such a great example where jails and prisons, which we, we witnessed, especially in the state of California, where, you know, our great friend, Governor Brown, um, who now is sort of supporting decarceration, was you know, oversaw one of the biggest prison construction periods. Uh, in in California history, and so now we people are talking about for the first time we need to decarcerate. This is not humane. Um, I think it's a very powerful redemptive possibility, uh, but it's uh, up against a force that says we not only need more prisons, but we need to lock people up forever. I mean that's that's what we're up against. So I don't know what the future holds. Um, I I I I. Um, in these instances, this is when I, I turn to um, Walter Benjamin and to Pierre Naville, uh, who was the great uh, French surrealist, who uh, both of whom, you know, really believe that um, in a kind of revolutionary pessimism, you know, the idea that you have to, uh, uh, like, you can't expect, you can't assume things are going to be better. You can't assume that you're going to vote in the progressive regime through social democracy. You can't assume that, you know, the Soviet experiment is just like on a path to, to greatness. They're like, no, that's not happening. What we, what we can do is fight against a catastrophe knowing things are terrible. Uh, and that, that revolutionary pessimism is the one that, that I embrace. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna ask you, um, what do you hold on to now? And what do you counsel that others hold on to? Is it, is it hope in, in uh, in you know the redemptive possibilities of the dialectics of history, or is it remaining uh, immersed in the despair of the moment and the ugliness, uh, the confrontation with the ugliness of this deeply rooted racism uh, that has defined the United States and its history? Um, because that um, uh, that can be immobilizing, uh, mm -hmm. or it can be animating. Um, and uh, I, you know, I wonder how you think at this point about, um, you, just, you, you touched upon it, but I'll ask you more directly, 
Um, how do you think about the possibility to uh, build upon this moment to really begin to uproot the foundations of racial injustice in this country? Um, mm. Do we have it within us to do it? And then I want to ask you specifically, what does it look like? And you already began to uh, reveal some of the important new policies that would have to be part of that um, more just world. Right. Well, David, this is the question that keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, besides my children, but um, I, I wish I had an easy answer. In fact, I, I went back and, and rediscovered and reread uh, Pierre Naville precisely because I don't have an answer to this question. You know, I, you know especially being in Black Studies, you know, one of the things we're confronted with is uh, a kind of new tendency, uh, an intellectual tendency known as Afro-pessimism, which is not the old Afro-pessimism, which, which was based on the idea that you know, Africa has no future, but a new Afro-pessimism based on the idea that anti-Black racism structures the entire universe, basically, uh, and that that is the main axis of antagonism uh, in the world. Uh, and so we have to sort of accept that and that the only way to get rid of it is to essentially the destruction of a whole system. Um, and I don't, I don't buy the idea that um, anti-Black racism um, structures all of Western civilization or all of the globe. I think it's more complicated than that. I do think race does, but race also is not always tied to skin color. But that's another debate. Um, what I do think, though, is that we have to hold on to both of these things simultaneously. That is, we can never forget um, the, the, the depth of racial violence, gendered violence, of class violence, of, the, this, of a world that um, continues to die, deny people the basic humanity. Uh, let alone resources to be able to live the next day. Um, th that we, have, we can't forget that. Because we can't forget it in the way that we continue to imagine a new future or a dream, or whatever you want to call it. Those things have to be, we have to stay wide awake and be in the midst of them. Uh, and also come up with things that could relieve those conditions. That is, reform you know i mean there are people i know people i have friends who are like well you, you know you never could do anything about those things so therefore you need a revolution if there's no revolution don't call me well that's not how the world works people are are dying um people on the streets are dying so we have to always be vigilant about the catastrophes um both trying to be a solve um or solve and 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 try to sort of intervene but also look it's a long picture. Um, and so I do think that there's, I do look for hope, but hope is not something that is pie in the sky. Hope is the recognition of solidarity. And that when I see people moving from positions toward a, toward a, a kind of river demanding justice, who are also willing to, to yield with that river and recognize that the definitions of justice are not fixed, the definition of, of liberation not fixed, that we have to keep changing and moving together, 
that kind of solidarity, that's the source of hope for me. It's not about winning. You know, we're not going to win anything, but it's about moving um, and moving the discourse and moving the way we think, moving our common sense so that white supremacy, um, uh, a world governed by commodities and wealth accumulation, inequality, um, patriarchy, that these things are not common sense. This is not just a natural way of the world, but they're unnatural and have to be dislodged. And that's how I see it. And that's how I move in the world, you know. And in that regard, how do you read today Dr. King's belief that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice? Um, my, my position on that is that it doesn't bend toward justice. You know, I think that if, if King were sitting next to me, next me right now, uh, my guess is that he'd agree with me when I say that we bend it, you know, that the people bend it, that, the, that there's no necessary natural arc, that, that, that there's, no, um, uh, uh, there's no guarantee you know, because that's kind of teleological understanding of history. Like, you know, we, we know we're going to get there. And this is Obama. He does the same thing. We know we're going to get because we just follow that arc and we'll get there. But we have to keep bending it in the same way that Simon Rodia bent those steel rods to make the Watts Towers. You know, we have to bend, bend, bend. And sometimes they snap and break in our face. You know, sometimes we get, sometimes they bend in ways that we then don't recognize what justice is. And I think that we have to continue to, to be vigilant about even defining what justice is, um, because I don't think it's always fixed, you know? Um, and, and, and I don't think it's individual. I think it's, these are the collective conversations we have to have all together. Uh, but I do think one thing that I think King and I would definitely agree on is that in trying to bend that arc, I think he's absolutely right about, uh, about the meaning of, of the kind of political love that he talks about, which is agape, which is this constant struggle to make community. And that, you know, no matter how many times I might uh, feel seduced by the claims of Afro-pessimists, I also know that in the end, making communities is hard, hard, hard thing that will require all of us. Uh, and, to, and if you really believe that, then you believe that you believe in abolition. And so this is gonna sound strange. I think that uh, I'm not pushing for um, jail time for anybody, you know? I don't think anyone should be jailed or executed or banned, uh, but rather the struggle to make community is to try to figure out how to get those people who were nobodies, who were cogs in this administrative wheel uh, to, find their humanity within solidarity with others to try to destroy this machine and build something that's much more humane. Which brings us back, of course, to the banality of evil um, and Hannah Arendt's concept. Um, and you've articulated, um, if I've understood you correctly, a kind of theory of history, according to which we have constancy of change. We have um, a measure of human agency, but serious structural constraints placed upon it. Um, and in a certain sense, that's the hand we're dealt with. That's what leads to redemptive pessimism, Afro-pessimism. Um, but it is not a mandate to uh, to stay uh, uh, static. Um, it requires constant movement. Right. Um, so maybe as just the final question, um, and we thank you because we know this is such a 
a busy and troubling and troubled time for you and for all of us, um, I can ask, what do you think the role of the historian is in the pursuit of justice? Um, and how have you understood your vocation as an historian, as, uh, as an instrument in your own pursuit of justice? <laughs> Dang, you come up with such hard questions. Um, but that's, that's why you're so brilliant. So here, here's, I have a very simple answer, actually, now I think about it. Um, there was a, one of my heroes in the kind of African liberation movement was an intellectual activist, writer, leader of the revolutionary movement in um, Guinea-Bissau, and his name is Amokar Cabral. And he had the slogan, not just a slogan, but he used to say frequently, you know, uh, t tell no lies, claim no easy victories. And I think, and I try to train my own students and teach my own students that, you know, we can't be afraid of the evidence that contradicts everything we believe. We've got, we, and, and I'm not saying that, I'm not making a case for empiricism. I'm saying that we have to pursue um, as, as much of something we can think of as the truth as possible. That is, dig deep into uh, and, and challenge the assumptions that we bring to bear on our material. Uh, even if that means, if it means A, studying the things that we don't feel comfortable studying, you know, examining the questions that we don't feel comfortable examining, um, being prepared to change our position, you know, based on what we discover and how we think about it. Uh, and don't use the platform we have as historians as ways to do agitprop, you know, propaganda work. I mean, I'm not, I, look, I'm, I'm not against agitprop. I, 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 I like, I do that stuff, but there's a difference in that in actual scholarship and scholarship matters. It really does matter. Um, the, 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 the most, I mean, and we can come back to, to, you can end on Hannah Arendt because, you know, even though I may not agree with a lot of things she writes, she was not afraid to say the unpopular thing, to try to go dig deeper and understand how structures work, to, to, to deal with the things that are hidden from public view. And it's the things that are hidden, the, the operations that we can't see, that's our job to discover those things, reveal them. Doesn't mean that we're always right, but it means that we're not out there to make people happy or excited. We're out there to dig deep and reveal some truths that might be able to allow us uh, some deeper insights and move forward. Well, indeed, she was fierce in her criticism. Um, and Robin, you too have some of that fierceness uh, in your critical perspective, uh, which is matched by uh, really extraordinary scholarship. It's been a privilege to spend this time with you, Robin. Uh, I know you have other things to go to, so we will uh, let you go get to them. Uh, but uh, we thank you for making time to be with us on Then and Now, uh, which is a, a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Uh, special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. And thank you again so much, Robin Kelly. Yeah, well, thank you. This was a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. 
Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. Thank you.